Please remain standing for the reading of our gospel lesson from the book of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have given the right answer. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Judy, for reading our lesson this morning. It is a great joy to be with you on this, the first weekend in June. And thank you to the chancel choir and to Jubilation Choir. Wasn't that marvelous this morning to hear them singing together? Amen? Amen. Amen. We're so grateful to you. And to our Stephen ministers as well, we're recognizing you. And I'd like to just take a minute to invite the Stephen ministers who are with us, who are active or in past have been Stephen ministers. Would you stand so that we can uh, give thanks to God for you? Amen. Wow. That's amazing. That I, actually, over the last few weeks, I've been considering uh, asking for a Stephen minister myself. So uh, this is a tremendous ministry that means so much, not just to our church, but to our community. And so we're grateful to all of you. It is a, a surprise and a special joy to see Alan and Marjorie Black with us uh, seated in front of Lucille. Alan is our district superintendent uh, in the Harpeth River District, and Marjorie is uh, the one who does the work for Alan. And we welcome you all. Uh, Sherry and I are enjoying our first year here at Brentwood and are so grateful uh, to be here. So first or second year, I can't remember which, but it's wonderful to have you with us, Alan. Um, Well, if you've been with us since the first part of May, you know that we're continuing this series that we started four weeks ago called Neighbors. And today we've heard read, Judy's read for us what I think is perhaps the best known parable in the New Testament, maybe second to the prodigal son is this story of the Good Samaritan. 
In fact, it's so familiar to our ears that sometimes when we hear it initially, the beginning of it, our minds sort of go on to autopilot because we've heard all this before. And to be honest with you, I I struggled, I hesitated as to whether or not to include it in this series because frankly, sometimes I I think this stream has been fished out. And yet over the last few weeks, I've gotten a couple of nibbles and bites in this text that I have not seen before. And and so I think I'd like for us to share together in this story before we come to the table. I wanna begin this morning with some context because this particular story is unique. It is exclusively found in Dr. Luke's gospel. It occurs, the story is told in the context of what scholars often refer to as the travel section of Luke's narrative, the travel narrative. It begins in chapter 9, verse 51, and ends in chapter 19, verse 47. So it contains most of the central section of the ministry of Jesus. It begins with chapter 9, verse 51, where it says of Jesus, and Jesus set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. In other words, at this point, Jesus knows where the road is going, and he's determined to face it in Jerusalem. It's also a conclusion to his ministry in Galilee. And so in the very next chapter, chapter 10, Jesus sends out others to do the work that he's been doing, not just 12, but 70. In Luke 10, he sends out 70 to preach and to heal in the surrounding towns and villages. And the results are amazing. I mean, the spirit is moving. They're having an impact. And when they come back together for kind of a holy huddle, they're having a little testimony meeting about what the Lord is doing in their work, and Jesus, too, is rejoicing. In fact, you can find the prayer of Jesus rejoicing with his disciples in Luke 10, 21, and 22. This is immediately before what Judy read. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned And you have revealed them to little ones, humble ones, for this was your gracious will. Apparently, in the context of that prayer, there is a Pharisee who is eavesdropping with the disciples. We know this because verse 25 says, just then a lawyer, that is one of the wise and learned, interrupted the meeting with a test question. Now, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, the word for test in the Greek is parazzo. It means to tempt or to trick or to deceive. And whenever you see that word parazzo, it's used in reference to two entities, the Pharisees and the devil. And so he's not asking because he doesn't know. He's asking to trap Jesus, and this is the trick question. Teacher, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the question is flawed from the beginning because you really don't do anything to gain an inheritance. Somebody else has to do something, namely they have to pass away, but you don't have to do anything. All you have to do is open your hands and to accept it. And Jesus, however, treats the question with respect And he does what he typically does, what a typical rabbi would have done. He answers the question with a question. 
what's written in the law. In other words, you're the expert, you're one of the wise and learned, how do you read it? How do you interpret it? And the lawyer points to two verses that we've been looking at. The first is from Deuteronomy 6.5, love God with all you've got. And Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus responds with an affirmation. That's a really good answer, he says. Why don't you do it and you will live? Now, at this point, a wiser man would have left well enough alone, (laughs) but not this wise and learned man. Verse 29 says, wanting to justify himself, in other words, wanting to validate his own appearance of righteousness, he asks, who is my neighbor? Now, I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this text. Eugene Peterson says that the lawyer, looking for a loophole, asks, what do you mean by neighbor? How do you define neighbor? I don't know about you, but I've noticed, I've noticed this in in some of our theological discussion, especially with clergy, that when we start parsing the meaning of simple words, we're no longer trying to get at the truth, we're trying to get around the truth. And so I suggest that what he's really asking is not who is my neighbor. What he really wants to know is who is not my neighbor. In other words, who do I have to love and who can I avoid loving? That's a different question than meets the eye. And Jesus responds with a parable. A certain man, he doesn't identify him, A certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. This is a well-known road. Those of you who went with us to Israel back in February, you know this road. We saw it from a distance. It's a distance of 17 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho. Geography is this. Jerusalem is about 2,500 feet above sea level, and Jericho is 800 feet below sea level. So it's a 3,300-foot drop, and you can feel it in the climate. It's a risky road. It's a jagged, rinding road through rocks and caves, which, by the way, make excellent hiding places for thugs. And sure enough, this certain guy was assaulted by a gang of camel jackers. That's what it said. They mugged him. They beat him. They stripped him naked. And they left him half dead in a ditch. Now, here's where it gets interesting. By chance, says Luke, a priest, preacher from First Methodist Jerusalem, comes along, and he passed by. Now, don't feel forgotten, lay folks. There was also a Levite, that is, the lay leader of First Church Jerusalem, who also passed by on the other side. And at this point, I just want to pause the story because I feel like I need to say a word on behalf of the clergy. Maybe the priest, the Levite, maybe they thought that this guy was a plant, a setup. I mean, it happened all the time on that road. It was notorious for that kind of activity. What would happen is, and it still happens, somebody pulls up the hood on their car on the side of the road and pretends to be broken down, and you pull over and stop to help, and they jump you. And so maybe this preacher and this layperson thought to themselves, it's better to be safe than to be sorry. And so they went by. 
Or maybe they're actually on their way to the temple for service. Maybe they're having communion, and you know the ceremonial law. You touch the blood of another person, you touch a corpse, unclean, you're unfit for service for a week. But notice they're not going up to Jerusalem. Where are they going? They're going down to Jericho. And at this point, all of my excuses are kind of running out. And then I think, well, maybe they just didn't see him. That happens sometimes where there's an accident or somebody gets hurt and I was there, but I just, I didn't know it was happening. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says when they saw him. What? <laughs> they saw it. And they, they passed by. Now, at this point in the story, the wise and learned lawyer is thinking to himself, I know exactly where Jesus is going with this story. The next guy is going to be the hero. He's going to be an Israelite. He's going to be a Jewish lay leader like himself, and he's going to save the day. And besides, everybody loves an anti-institutional, anti-clerical story, right? And we know that all the temple really wants is our money. And so Jesus is going to make a hero out of a layman and in the same story, stick it to the man, to the institution. But that's not exactly what happens. At this point in the story, Jesus throws a knuckleball and I think ruins an otherwise wonderful story. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him and when he saw him, he was moved with pity, and he went to him. Now, at this point, I'm thinking the disciples are looking, looking at each other and saying, I don't know that I would have told it like that. A good Samaritan? It's an oxymoron to a person of Jewish descent. It's like saying a good Palestinian to an Israeli. It doesn't compute. It's like saying a good Israeli to a Palestinian. I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but whenever you see prejudice or racism, there's a history there. <laughs> and there's a big history here. In fact, when Jesus was telling the story, the history went back seven centuries. Let me share it briefly with you. After Israel, the northern kingdom's destruction in 722 B.C., the Assyrian armies under Sargon mixed the Jewish population into a pagan populace. They made them to intermarry, to intermingle, and they began to lose their ethnic distinctiveness. Later on, uh, they even established an alternative site for worship away from Jerusalem at a place called Mount Gerizim, and so they don't even have the same worship places anymore. And the southern kingdom, Judea, considered the northern folks as half-breeds, heretics. Devout Jews from the south would literally go miles out of their way to avoid setting foot on Sumerian soil. And so in the mind of a Judean, there is no such thing as a good Samaritan. And today that's still happening. That's 2,700 years of history. But this guy is good. And he's a Samaritan. And the way Jesus tells it, the beginning of good happens 
when he comes near to him. Whenever you come near to a person in need, that's the first step of mercy. You don't have to fix it. That's the first step of goodness. Whenever you decrease the distance between yourself and the guy in the ditch, that's the beginning of kingdom. Now, I don't know about you. I'm sure this is not true of you, but, but it's true of me. I expend way too much energy sometimes distancing myself, detaching myself, bypassing, sometimes for safety's sake, sometimes for self-preservation. But according to Jesus, the definition of a neighbor is simply this. It's somebody who comes near to my need. I don't mean just when it's convenient. I mean when it's inconvenient. I mean when it's risky. One of the things that gets me about this story is did you notice that the only character in the story whose identity and ethnicity is unspecified is that guy in the ditch. And I want to argue with Jesus for a moment. Don't you think it it might be important to know who it is you're helping before you help them? And Jesus says, no, that's irrelevant. It doesn't matter who or what he, she is, they have a need. And goodness began when he just came near. I mean, there are other words there. He was moved with pity. He bandaged, listen to the verbs, he poured oil, he took care. He put him on his mule. He took him to the inn. He even got out his Samaritan Express card. (laughs) Just left it there in case there was any extra. And at the end of the story, Jesus asked one last question. This is checkmate, by the way. Which of the three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And there's really only one answer. The one who showed mercy, he says. Now, this is kind of humorous to me because in answering that question, the Jewish guy won't even use the S word. He can't bring himself to say Samaritan. All he can say is the one who showed mercy. And Jesus says, that's a really good answer, but it would be better if you just do it. Just do it. In other words, what that says to me is it is not enough to know the right answer. You have to do the right thing. In effect, Jesus simply changes the question. The question is not who is my neighbor. The question is who am I supposed to be a neighbor to? Jesus changes the question. That's a curveball. There's an old Arab proverb that says it like this, to have a good neighbor, you must be one. I want to share two examples and I'm finished. I was reading a week, uh, last week, about the tragic accident that claimed the life of Rod and Paula Bramblett. Did you see this? Rod Bramblett was for many years the voice of the Auburn Tigers. They leave two children, one who's in high school, one who's a student at Auburn. 
The community in Auburn had suffered even the night before this accident, the killing of a police officer and two others who were wounded. And I don't have to tell you, many of you know the rivalry between Alabama and Auburn, right? I mean, it was similar like Georgia and Georgia Tech. In fact, last night I did a wedding with a Georgia uh, bride and a Georgia Tech groom. And so half the crowd was split. I asked one of the grooms of a Georgia Tech guy, are you seating the Georgia people on the left or the right? He said, no, I'm seating them out in the grass. I don't have to tell you about the rivalry that happens around that. You know about it. Well, there's a guy named Johnny Sharp in Huntsville, Alabama, who has just died in the wool, Crimson Tide guy, even more than you, Alan, died in the wool. And he works for Marshall Space Flight Center. He's a cartoonist on the side, and he and his wife have had their share of pain. They've suffered from infertility. They have suffered the loss of her health and the loss of their home in a tornado. And so he wanted to do something to come near. And so he worked all night on this little sketch that went viral, it's gone worldwide. I have a picture of the sketch. That's something you don't see very often. Big Al, <laughs> who's got his arm around Aubie, and it's, 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 not a, it's a simple expression of a profound truth. It's a symbol of what it means to come near, to be a neighbor. Last word, one of our members here who's been with us this morning shared with me recently her neighbor's story by email. I've changed the names to protect the guilty, but this is the story. The Jones have lived across from us the last 15 years, she writes. We've always waved to each other if we're out front at the same time, but we're all on one-acre lots, so we're not very close to one another in terms of proximity. But I would sometimes make it a point to go over into the yard and talk to Mr. Jones while he was working. They're both retired from Meharry four or five years ago. We have a Christmas progressive dinner every year on the block, which we've always invited our friends to come to. They have not as yet come, she writes, but they were always cordial and reserved at the same time. And the first thing I noticed was that a lawn service was cutting his grass, and we knew something was wrong because he's a perfectionist about his yard. A couple of weeks later, we heard the ambulance, their house, 10 o'clock at night, she writes, I was already in my PJs, but it just kept nagging at me. I need to go over and let her know that she's not alone. And we just started this neighbor series, so I didn't have any excuse. And so I dressed and went over, and she came to the door, and, explained, and I explained to her that we were praying for them, and she gave me a big hug. I didn't ask any questions. I gave her my cell number and said, I'm here if you need me. And a week later, the ambulance came back again and he went to the hospital. I sent a group text to our neighbors to pray for them, and one of our other neighbors, who's also a BUMC member, we were talking about this neighbor series, and, and so she made it a point to send a card to the family and ask others to do that as well. On my next visit, I took flowers, and this time she invited me in, and she took me to him. He's doing chemo treatments, and because of weakness, he had had a bad fall that resulted in that second ambulance, and they mentioned that they had received, received card after card after card 
from their neighbors and from the church. And they said, everybody's missing you in the yard. She said, I think it's making a difference. Maybe they'll come to the Christmas progressive dinner. Very simple. The real question is not who is your neighbor. The real question is who are you to be neighbor to for Jesus' sake? And the implicit truth of this old fished out parable is your neighbor is anybody who's in the ditch. (laughs) Anybody who has a need. In fact, sometimes I'm in the ditch and sometimes it's the hardest thing to allow someone else to help. I think that's it too. When you close the distance, when you come near, that's the beginning of goodness and mercy. And it's in the doing that we actually become like the one who has come down to us. Oh, friends, this morning, you are invited to a table where there is no distance between Jesus and you. And when you come and receive the inheritance, somehow you rise in newness of life and you go forth to close the distance for love's sake. And that's what it means to be a neighbor. Amen.